therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Good morning, everybody. You know, uh, sometimes I feel like when I come up here, one of my favorite parts about preaching is, is it gets to kind of be my own personal group therapy session where I get to maybe admit things to you, confess things to you, and things like that. Uh, th this morning, two of those things. Uh, first off, something I never thought I would say, but I think I'm about ready to become just a one-issue voter. If you're a politician and you want me to vote for you, you have to be in favor of doing away with daylight savings time. Because, thank you. Again, the loudest applause I've gotten in a year of being here is for that. Okay. The other thing that I will confess is, is that sometimes I can be a procrastinator. I appreciate my wife not clapping and cheering when I said that or just bursting out in laughter at me. But in certain areas of my life, I have always been a procrastinator. Now, the way I work, though, is I usually go one of two ways. Uh, the, the first way is I kind of embrace the, the, the type A that's inside of me, and I am running at a thousand percent towards whatever the goal is that I want to achieve. But the other dramatic difference is that I have, in certain situations, become very adept at just simply kicking the can down the road. If I am fired up about something, if I'm excited for it, if I think it's going to be fun or it's going to be epic, if I know that it is something that is going to serve the kingdom of God or, or, or the greater good in general, right, I'm ready to go. If I'm at the red light, I'm the type of person who's looking around and if there's no cars coming, right, if there's no police around, I'm going, okay, let, let's just get going. Let's get a little bit of a head start. But conversely... If it's something I'm really not excited about, if it's something maybe that could be considered tedious, I can certainly be the other way. And I become the person who now is at the intersection. The light has turned green, but I'm in no rush, so I'm waving the other cars on because I'll wait at that intersection all day long. Now, I said I appreciate Linda not laughing because she's probably just about the only person in this room who sees that side of me. Right? Most of you only get to see the, the person who sees something and wants to go get it. But I've had to learn something very important about procrastination during the last year of living here in Michigan. And it is that procrastination in Florida and procrastination in Michigan can be two very different things. Now, here's what I mean by that. If my wife wants me to stain the back deck, let's say, it's an important job. It has to happen. But it's very easy for me to procrastinate that task in Florida because, you know what, I can do that task about 365 days a year. So if I don't get to it this weekend, no worry, there's always the next. 
If I don't get it to it this month, no worry, there's always the next. But, but here in Michigan, and, and you guys know this better than I do, I've come to learn that there's only about like a 45-day window when I can do something like stain my deck. And if I miss that window, if I procrastinate too long, well, guess what? Nothing I can do about it. I'm, I'm waiting until next year. The consequence of my procrastination is much greater here in Michigan than it was in Florida. Now, that is all to say, I've told you before that there were admittedly a few chapters in Hebrews that I have known since November when I started kind of mapping out where we were going to walk through this book. There were a few chapters that I knew were going to be a little bit more difficult than the others. But way back in November, March 12th felt very, very far away. Right? It wasn't even Thanksgiving yet, and, and there I am I'm fretting about something that's going to happen when Easter is less than 30 days away. Yes, Easter is less than 30 days away. You heard me right. We'll talk more about that later. But I knew what I wanted to talk about in this chapter today, in chapter 10. And I read it over time and time again in, in the weeks building up to this, but I could never get myself to a point where I thought I would be able to communicate to you clearly what it was that God wanted me to say. And, and banging my head into the wall didn't seem to work. So in an act of near desperation, not full desperation, right? Don't think too little of me, just near desperation. I did what I should have done weeks before. Is I picked up the phone and I sent a text message. Now notice I said text message because at least for the next couple months I'm still in my 30s. And those of us in our 20s or 30s, we can have a conversation about anything over text message. Right? If I called some of you guys in your 20s on a random Thursday morning and you saw your phone actually ring, you would probably assume someone had died, right? Right. Now, maybe after I turn 40, I'll start to embrace my old age and I'll start making more phone calls. But I text someone who I trust. I text someone who has been at this longer than I have. And, and I text them. I said, man, this is what I'm reading. Right? This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm praying about. And I said, what am I missing? And the person I text, his name is Bryce. Bryce is a really great guy. Bryce is our old uh, lead pastor from our church down in Florida. And, and I waited patiently, and after about 10 minutes, Bryce texted me back. And his reply, all he said was, Hey, do you know that there are places in the world that you can travel to that are so dangerous that if you decide to go there, if you step across the line just one step too far, that there's no promise that anyone's going to come rescue you? Right? If you want to go climb Mount Everest, right? you are acknowledging that as you start that climb, you may get to a point where no one is going to come and bail you out. There's places in Africa where you can go into, on safari or into the jungle that you know you're taking your life into your own hands when you step into these areas. Uh, the State Department issues travel warnings all the time. Right? As an American citizen, they say, hey, if you find yourself wanting to travel to Russia right now, or you want to go to Afghanistan, hey, it's on you. Because if you get there and you get in trouble, well, guess what? We're not coming to get you anymore. Now, without any context about what it is that I was asking him about, that seems like a very bizarre answer. But what I can tell you is, is in that moment, it was exactly what I needed to hear, and it made everything very clear for me. Uh, we discussed a few other things over text message, checking in on the church down there, and, and, and I left the conversation feeling pretty good. I left feeling like I had survived another day, that my procrastination was not going to jump up and bite me this week. 
What we're going to see today as we read chapter 10, or at least a portion of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, is we are going to see yet another warning to the believer. We've seen a lot of warnings through this book so far, but, but this warning that we're going to read today is probably the harshest. Right? In my opinion, when I read this warning today, this is the scariest of all of the warnings that we have read as we've walked through this book. And what makes this warning difficult is that if we do read it out of the context of everything else surrounding it in Hebrews, if we read it outside of the context of everything else that we know in the New Testament, it starts to make us think that what we know might be untrue. So even though it may be counterproductive, I want to start today by simply reading this warning to you. And it's going to be verses 26 and 27 of Hebrews chapter 10. As always, we'd love for you to be reading out of your app or your Bible in front of you, but the verses will also be on the screen behind me. So starting in verse 26, the author writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it slower this time, because I want you to, to actually think and listen, li- listen to how scary these words truthfully are. Starting in verse 26 again. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I sure hope I'm not the only one that when I just read those two verses, no other context around them, it makes me squirm a little bit in my seat. Right, perhaps the rest of you, everybody else in this room, you've, you've completed this process of sanctification. You've perfected your faith to this point where you can honestly say that you have completely eliminated deliberate sin from your life. And if that is you today, I'll say one of two things to you. First off, hallelujah. Right, good for you. That is amazing. Right? I know I'm still a work in progress, and I'm willing to bet many of you here today are as well. The second thing that I would say, if if these verses did not stir any type of fear in you, if you listen to them and you can read them and process them confidently, for some of you, perhaps, you also need to be a little bit more honest with yourself. right? But that's a conversation that takes place between you and God, not between you and me or any other man. What's important is that we do unpack this a bit, right? because we can't just leave these two verses out of context where we found them. Because, again, if we take these two verses and we take them out of the context, it would lead us to understand them to mean that a Christian who stumbles one time, deliberately does the wrong thing one time, who knows the right thing to do but still elects to sin, it would lead us to believe that there's no sacrifice for them. It would read us, the way we would read it would imply that this Christian who stumbles this one time deliberately would essentially be excommunicated, right? Would become this apostate of sorts. That that if we have received the Holy Spirit, but we still fall prey to sin one time, that there is nothing good left to look forward to. The only thing we look forward to, it says, is judgment and fury and fire. So the question that I have to ask myself when I just read those two verses is, can this really be the true intention of what I just read? 
If I have truly converted, if Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, I have been baptized, I am a confessing Christian, and I fall short. Now, what this isn't saying, too, let's be clear about this, this isn't saying if I stub my toe, or a better example, if I get up in the middle of the night to use the restroom and I step on a Lego piece, right, and just instinctually that word I know I shouldn't say comes out of my mouth or I take the Lord's name in vain, Right? This isn't necessarily what, what we're talking about here. Uh, a better example of the type of deliberate sin that we're talking about, first one, I'm going to give an example for, for, for the guys and the gals here, so I'm not being sexist when I say ladies, I'm just kind of prejudging. But ladies, how about this one? Uh, let's say you're looking across the street at your neighbor's house after they've just had a brand new in-ground pool put in, and you say, man, the Joneses, Man, Mr. Jones just put a pool in for his family, for his wife and kids. And you know what? In our house, at the end of the month, we're barely keeping the lights on. Man, I, I, I wish I had what the Joneses have. And in that moment, when that conviction comes in and says, no, that's not the thing you should say, that, that's coveting what is your neighbor's, you push that thought away and you say, no, you know what? I deserve this. Yes, this is what I want to say. Yes, this is what I want to feel. You've broken a commandment. Right? You've known the right thing to do, but you've still elected to do wrong. You, you've still stumbled. You've still sinned. Right? That thought process, if I don't care if it's wrong, I know that I deserve this. Guys, an example for you. You know intellectually how dangerous lust can be. But you find yourself at the beach one day, minding your own business, enjoying the sound of the waves. And of course... The young ladies that show up to play volleyball decide that right in front of you, between your vision and the beach, is a great place for them to set up their game. And we're not talking about, hey, I see something shiny out of the corner of my eye and then I look away. No, we're talking about that you justify to yourself. Hey, I know it's wrong, but what's two or three or 15 little glimpses? Who's it really going to harm? You know it's wrong. You decide to do it anyway. And verses 26 and 27, if we read them again with no other context, would tell me then that there is no forgiveness for you. This is not a three strikes and you're out situation. This is one and done. And when I keep reading the verses that follow, it doesn't quite get more hopeful for me. Verses 28 through 29, it says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? It's important again to remind you here that, that this letter was written to Christians. So even here, this warning that we read when he's talking about Moses and he's talking about the Old Covenant, this is still a warning, something he wants to remind these Christians about. Also important for us to notice that when the author writes in verse 26, he does use the term we. Right? He doesn't say you and point at the other people. He says we. He includes himself in what he is saying. He's saying we're all humans. We're all in the same boat. But he thinks it's worthwhile to remind these Christians, these followers of the way, he thinks it's important to remind them of what the Old Covenant demanded of their forefathers. 
we've noticed this theme as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews that so much of the bulk of this book is dedicated to comparing and contrasting the old covenant to the new covenant, what was to what is. It's always important when, again, we're reading any piece of scripture that we always have to keep in mind the big picture. We always have to keep in mind the reason that the whole book and really the entire New Testament was written and recorded for us. Again, as always, this is why we can't just lift two or three or four verses out of context and apply our own understanding to them. The author is reminding the readers that under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices that were typically offered, what they were offered for was incidental sin. Right, for what might be called the accidental or the unknowing breaking of the law. He's saying, hey, most of the time, there is actually no prescription given for the intentional disobedience. In the Old Covenant, intentional disobedience of the law, primarily what it led to was your death. We're going to flip back. We're going to go to the book of Numbers for one minute. I know you guys are thinking to yourself, how lucky are we? Leviticus last week, Numbers this week, I know. You don't have to flip, it will be on the screen, because we're going to be back in Hebrews in one minute, but I just want to recall this, this little, quick, four-verse story from the book of Numbers. It's chapter 15, uh, and it's in verses 32 through 36. It starts in verse 32, it says, While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on a Sabbath day. Okay, story starts kind of innocuously enough. We have a guy, we don't know, maybe he's cold. Maybe he's hungry. We don't know, but he's gathering some firewood. He wants to fill his stomach. He, he wants to get some warmth. I mean, we know it's wrong. We know it's against the law for him to be working on the Sabbath day, but this is something we probably can easily justify away, right? Verses 33 and 34 say this. It says, Those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done with him. I find that so interesting, right? They know that the man has done something wrong, but at this point, they've never witnessed somebody intentionally break God's law. They have no idea what the punishment should be for somebody who says, yep, I know the right thing to do, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I need to do anyway. Moses doesn't know. Aaron doesn't know. So Moses goes to God to find out what is it that we should do with someone who would intentionally disobey your law. Verse 35 says, The Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. That escalated kind of quickly, didn't it? And surely we read that and we understand our loving God. He, he probably didn't mean it, right? This was just going to be one of those tests. Right, where God just wanted to see, hey, would the people follow through with, with, with what I'm telling them, the rules and the regulations are, right? Just like, hey, I, if I tell you to bring your son to the altar to sacrifice him, you know, it's not really about you sacrificing your son, right? I'm going to provide a goat. I'm going to make sure that everything's okay. I just want to see that you love me enough that you would listen no matter what, that you trust me. Surely this is just going to be an example like that. Verse 36 says, And all the congregation brought him outside the camp, and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. No, it's not that type of story at all, is it? This reminder is that under the old covenant, covenant 
The, the sentence prescribed for intentional sin is almost always death. And this is just for the breaking of the law that was written on stone tablets. Essentially, what the punishment is for it is for wasting the blood that was spilled of a goat or a dove or a bull, whatever animal was sacrificed, so that you could be made temporarily clean in the Old Testament. For wasting an animal's blood, death was the prescription. And when we jump back to Hebrews in verse 29 that we read, you'll notice that there's a question there. And I do think this is not a hypothetical. I think this is a real question that the author wanted to ask the people of that generation. And it's a question that, that you and I probably need to have an answer for as well. Uh, we'll put verse 29 back up on the screen. It says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Again, literally a question that is being asked that you need to have an answer for. He's saying, what do you think? If the punishment for breaking the law under the old covenant, for intentionally picking up firewood on a day you were not supposed to, and, and, and discrediting the blood of an animal, if that deserved death, how much worse do you think it is to profane the blood of the Son of God? I guess since I'm the one with the microphone, I'll give my answer. If you're asking me, I would have to say, yes, it has to be worse. And, and maybe some out there will want to do some mental gymnastics and say, well, it's really no different. Either way, it's, it's still sin. It's still the same thing. But I do think we'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that would argue that it's a lesser offense to profane the blood of the, son, of the Son of God over the blood of a goat or a dove. So, Daniel, are you saying that Christians who sin deliberately should be stoned? No. I mean, first off, we would need to have, we'd have to find someone who is without sin to cast the first stone, and we know how that story works out, don't we? So then, Daniel, are you saying that a Christian who deliberately sins one time forsakes their salvation, that their forgiveness becomes retracted, and that they're left without hope, and that they're destined for hell? No. And the reason I can say no, and I can confidently say no, is because I have read more than just these three or four verses in Hebrews out of context. In fact, we don't even have to leave the 10th chapter of Hebrews to find scripture that tells me that this cannot be the proper interpretation of what we just read. It's verses 10, verses 12, and 14. They're almost lined up for us perfectly. Verse 10 says, and by that will, I'm sorry, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then verse 14, maybe the most convincing, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering that is perfect for all time for all of those that are being sanctified. Being is a super important word there because sanctification, as we've talked about before, that it is a process. It is the process of becoming Christ-like, the process of developing your faith to that point of eliminating the deliberate sin from your life. 
And being sanctified implies that one may not be there yet, that they are still on a journey. But it says that we have received a single offering in the form of Jesus Christ, and that even though while we are still on a journey to become sanctified, that Jesus Christ perfected us through that one-time offering. So if it is to be understood that we are still being made to be perfect, if it is understood that we may still stumble, that there are going to be times where we need to repent, where we need to see the sin in our own life and make corrections to our walk. As we've said before, if I believe that of sinners I am the worst offender, if I'm already aware of the thorn that is in my side that, that continues to make me stumble while I am pursuing sanctification, then why even bother having the big scary warning in verse 26? Why even bother reminding us that picking up sticks on a Saturday would get an Israelite stoned to death? The answer is this. Just because one incident of deliberate sin may not qualify you, or disqualify you, I should say, from your salvation, it does not mean that there is no danger in deliberate sin. First, it does not mean that there are no consequences for our sin. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, it also does not mean that re repeated incidences of this deliberate sin can't lead us to a place where we are now prepared to do the unthinkable, where we're prepared to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and willingly and voluntarily walk away from Christ's free gift of salvation. Essentially, this passage that was making me stumble, essentially what it is, it's a warning sign. It's here to grab the reader's attention to say danger, warning, extreme conditions are, are in front of you. If you decide to walk past this, this warning sign, if you decide to continue down this path of, of, of intentional sin, there are going to be consequences up to and including walking away from the greatest gift that you have ever known. That if you keep going down this path, what you might find is, is that you're at a point where you turn around and no one is coming to rescue you any longer. So this warning is saying, stop here, do not pass go, don't try to collect your $200, right? You need to take the sin in your life seriously. You need to actually look at it for what it is, right? The sin in our lives is deliberate sin. It's not some cute little thing that we chuckle about and, and we laugh at as we just, just skip through the world. Right, this deliberate sin it is something that can drag you down to a place where I may not be able to reach you anymore. A place where your heart will become so hard to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you may never actually make it back. As longtime Michiganders, you guys probably already know this, you, you don't have to go to Mount Everest in the wintertime or to Safari in Africa to find a place that is so dangerous that you might not be able to be rescued very easily. Uh, last summer, I was actually very excited to go and visit one of these places that we found right here in Michigan. Uh, it's called Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. It looks like this. Now, we didn't make it there last year because the weather was bad on the weekend that we wanted to go and visit, but before I moved to Michigan, I had no idea that there was anything this beautiful in this state. The, the, the gorgeous dunes, the green trees, the crystal blue water, it is one of the most beautiful things. I, well, I hope I'll actually get to see it with my own eyes maybe this summer, but from the pictures, it looks incredible. But here's the thing. At the top of those dunes that lead down to the crystal blue water, there are signs that look like this. 
And I know our, our resolution isn't the greatest, so I'll read these. Uh, up top here, it says, warning, avoid getting stuck at the bottom. Lake levels are high. The only way out is up. Rescue costs $3,000. Keep yourself and our rescuers out of danger. Enjoy the view from here. Don't risk injury and rescue fees by going down or the two hours it might take you to try to climb back up. The bottom one, warning steep bluff. 450 foot drop to Lake Michigan. Return climb is extremely exhausting. Do not run and do not throw rocks. What's that, Jim? You were tempted to throw a rock down there, weren't you? Okay. Here's what I want to tell you. If I'm being completely honest, if I found myself standing at the top of those dunes all alone, without anybody else around me, and I, it was a hot summer day, and I was looking down at that beautiful, cool, blue water, it would take me about two and a half seconds to decide to give it a try. It would not take long at all for me to forget that I am almost 40 years old. It would not take me very long to forget that I've had bad knees for as long as I can remember. I would strut confidently past that sign, and I would make a choice for myself that would probably make me very miserable at the end of the day. At a bare minimum, I have a feeling it might cost me $3,000. Do you know, though, what would keep me from climbing down that dune? Do, do you know what it is that would actually keep me on the, the right side, on the proper side of that warning sign that would keep me from a costly error, and if I'm 100% honest, maybe even keep me from a fatal mistake? Bingo. What would keep me from making that mistake is that I won't be standing at the top of the dunes alone. I'll have my wife and my daughters there with me. The, the fact that I would not be standing at the top of the bluff, being tempted alone, is probably the only reason that I would make a good decision in that moment. It's why I would stand at the top of the bluff and I would just admire the view from the top instead of finding myself stranded at the bottom. I'd have people standing beside me that would be willing to speak truth to me even if I could not see it myself. For me, and probably for many of you, this is essential if you're going to overcome the urge to do a dumb thing. This is why right before, in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, right before the scary warning in verses 26 to 31 comes sound advice that all of us who are in this pursuit of, of this desire to become sanctified should pay close attention to. Or if you are desiring to mature in your faith to a point that you can overcome deliberate sin in your life, this is advice you would be wise to listen to. We're going to look at verses 22 through 25. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Maybe it's there, but I've, I've never found it. The piece of scripture that I would turn to and say, See, the Bible says that the Christian life is lived most effectively in solidarity. I don't know a verse that I can point to and say, see, it looks, it is definitely better for you to go at this alone. Because when we are alone, when I am alone, accountability for my actions very quickly leaves the group chat. Right? What I need is, I, we, we all need people around us that are going to stir us, stir us towards love, stir us 
towards good works. Brothers and sisters who are going to encourage us to, to stand strong, to remember the promise and the hope that we have in the salvation of Jesus Christ. We should not neglect meeting together because when we are isolated, that is when the enemy has us exactly where he wants us. It's, it's the, the age-old imagery of the lion who goes after the gazelle who has been separated from the herd. And yes, this call to not neglect meeting together, this goes further than just a simple command for the local church to meet. I know that's the context most of us have become used to hearing this verse used in over the last few pandemic-fueled years. But in a broader sense, this passage is a call to have people in your life who you know and who know you, who are striving towards the same goals as you who you are going to allow into your life in a way that it's going to be obvious to them when you're standing in front of one of those warning signs. They're going to know when it is or you're struggling to make that good decision to just enjoy the view from the top of the bluff. I know that if I didn't have people in my life, like for example, if I didn't have Bryce that I could reach out to when I was stuck, I don't know if I would have ever gotten my mind clear, if I would have ever gotten to the point where I could put this together today. I know that if I didn't have people in my life, like, like my wife, that would grab me by the back of my swim shorts and say no, I would probably still be sitting at the bottom of that dune waiting for my rescue boat. And yes, obviously, it also is the church. For, for many of you, it also maybe is your small group. Maybe it is just a tight-knit group of friends that you stay in contact with. I hope for all of us, it is our family. All of us, though, have been designed and created to live in community so that we can have protection and so that we can have accountability. All of us need people who, who are going to stop us from walking past the warning signs. People who, with every step that we take, are going to remind us, hey, I know it's only one step and you think nothing bad has happened yet, but you know what? It's normally not the first or the second step that's going to get you. It's when you've taken so many steps that you try to turn back and you try to look where you came from and you can't even see the warning sign anymore. Right? We need people that if we decide that we are going to march away from that warning sign, that with every step that we take, they are going to be there praying for us. They're going to be shouting, asking us to come back, that if we do get to that point where we're so far away that we can't see our way back to the top of the bluff, that they're going to be firing off rescue flares and signals, begging and praying for us to come back to safety. Pray with me, church.